And that was Lovers by Dr. Jason Martineau, and this is Gnostic Media Research and Publishing's podcast, episode number 109. I'm your host, Jan Irvin. This episode is an interview with Dr. Jason Martineau, titled The Spiritual Dimensions of Music, and is being released on Monday, March 28, 2011. My interview with Jason was recorded on March 24, 2011. Jason Martineau is an award-winning composer, pianist, arranger, and instructor, and has been active in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1995. He is a graduate of the University of South Florida, the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and the Manhattan School of Music, and has composed numerous works for orchestras, chamber ensembles, solo piano, and chorus, as well as full-length musical multiple film scores, and over 200 songs, both instrumental and vocal. Dr. Martineau has recorded more than 10 CDs in various genres and has also been featured on numerous other artists' recordings as pianist, music director, and producer. He provides scores, arrangements, original compositions, soundtracks, sound design, accompaniment, private instruction, and musical direction for a diverse and eclectic client base. Dr. Martineau works in multiple capacities with many different idioms and styles from world fusion and jazz to avant-garde industrial rock, pop, and classical. Recently, he orchestrated string arrangements by Vanessa Carlton for her latest album, Heroes and Thieves. He has also authored a book on music theory released in October 2008 entitled The Elements of Music, published by Wooden Books and Walker Books Bloomsbury distributed both nationally and internationally. His film scores have been featured in documentaries broadcast on PBS stations around the U.S. since 1998. He also provides music cues and backgrounds for a large variety of multimedia projects. He has been playing the piano for 36 years, performing since 1989 at numerous venues in the San Francisco Bay Area, Los Angeles, New York, and more recently the 10th International Festival of Dance and Music in Bangkok, Thailand. In 2011, he joined the faculty at the Academy of Art University teaching music notation and theory. You can find out more about Jason at jasonmartineau.com, martineauarts.com, and dodecahedron.us. And those links will all be posted for the show notes to this episode. And this weekend, I went to the David Icke Lecture in L.A., and while I think there were a few areas that needed work and strengthening, overall, I was impressed with his lecture. And I think if Icke would empower his audience with things like the Trivium and Quadrivium, I feel that he would have a much stronger message. But uh, he does uh, open people's eyes and puts a lot of information out there. Some of it, I think... uh, could use a little strengthening or disregarding that's unnecessary, but overall, I was fairly impressed with his presentation, and thanks to Dr. Craig and his sons for making that happen, and I'll be at the Free Your Mind conference in Philadelphia for April 9 and 10, giving a lecture, and uh, come and join us there for more information. Please visit the Free Your Mind website at www.freeyourmindconference.com. And donations this week's show is dedicated to Sarah, Kenneth, Aaron, Samuel, Jason, John, and James. This show is dedicated to all of you, and thank you so much. 
And this show is run on donations. This is not corporate media, but independent media in the truest sense of the words. And by donating or ordering one of the books or DVDs or the audio archives or getting a membership to download the older podcasts, you help to continue this programming. And, of course, we ask that you stop sending your money every month to your local cable company, paying the corporate media to lie to you every day. And for that matter, places like Starbucks. And instead, invest in your and everyone else's edification by donating and making interviews like these and other projects like this happen. And not just here, but for all quality independent media. Upcoming shows, I I think next week is going to be Professor Bart Dean. I was not able to get that recorded last week. I also have Professor John Hupps lined up to come back for the 2012 Meme Part 3. He's got some mind-blowing new material. And it looks like I may be having Dr. David Harriman on to discuss his new book, as well as his lecture series, The Philosophic Corruption of Physics. I have not been able to get a time confirmed yet on that and Miguel Connor to discuss his new book on the Gnostics, Peter Gorman to discuss his book on ayahuasca, Jose Barrera to discuss alchemy and the endocrine system, and uh, I still plan on having Andrew Wakefield and William Ingdahl on. It's just been a headache to keep up with all of the reading and everything else that has to be done around here. And you can support this program by going to the Gnostic Media website and ordering one of the books, DVDs, or the She Who Remembers audio archives, a t-shirt, a download membership, etc. We greatly appreciate your support, and we can't do this without you. The views expressed by the authors and guests of this unprogram are their own and are not necessarily those held by myself, the host, or Gnostic Media. You can check out more at Gnostic Media at www.gnosticmedia.com. That's G-N-O-S. TICmedia.com, and you can contact me through the web form on the website or directly at contact at gnosticmedia.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for your support. And here is my interview, The Spiritual Dimensions of Music, with Dr. Jason Martineau. Enjoy. It's a mind blower. Jason, welcome to the Gnostic Media Podcast. I'm happy to have you on. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And last week we had Scott Olson on, and a couple of weeks before that we had John Martineau on, your distant cousin and publisher of Wooden Books, your publisher. Yes. And uh, wanted to have you on to discuss the spiritual dimensions of music, and uh, so you seem to be uh, a a person who can uh, explain music to us. Yeah, I've been... uh a pianist and musician since I'm well five years old and it was always a very right brain kind of activity for me but as I got older it became an obsession for me to learn how I how how it works why it works and and how to talk about it because I think that's one of the most challenging aspects of music and music theory and sort of to be able to discuss it and, and make some sense of it and not have it be abstract well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your educational background? Yeah. Um, so as I was saying there, I, I you know, was playing by ear for a very long time. And uh, when I went to, you know, I had a few lessons here and there, but not much. Um, I moved around a lot growing up. And so there may be, you know, six months in this state and six months in another state. And uh, what happened was uh, I was in college and wasn't even sure what it would be I would be majoring in. And so I discovered the music department 
there. This is at University of South Florida in Tampa. And I took a class just as a kind of elective because, you know, I was, okay, well, you have to take some electives and here's this music program over here. I'll just check it out. And one of the faculty there said, you know, you, you, you could be uh, studying here. And I had no idea what I wanted to study. I was just taking uh, general distribution courses, you know, mathematics and sciences and so on. Uh, and I said, really? And they said, yeah, you know, we have uh, various music degrees. And I'm like, oh, well. Uh, so uh, there's a piano performance degree, and I thought, well, I'm, I am not really uh, at the level of these classical pianists. I mean, they've been taking lessons their whole lives. They've been reading music their whole lives. I, I just have been playing by ear and improvising, and, and I really well. I write lots of songs, I said. And they said, well, you know, we have a composition degree. And I thought, oh, no, that's interesting. Okay. So I started exploring that, and sure enough, that, that's where I headed. So I did that four-year program in the remaining two years and um, just kind of plowed through it and took as many classes as I could and, and night classes and summer and so on. And so from there, went to, of course, then I plugged in all the holes, right? So I had this whole right brain understanding, but I had no left brain uh, way to, to parse this information and to be able to talk about it or write it down. Um, so this was a great period of, of merging these two sides of understanding music for me. Then I went to the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and uh, another composition degree and got my master's there. And after that, went to uh, Manhattan School of Music and from there got, I got my doctorate. Um, and then I moved back here to the Bay Area. So your book, Why Write It? Yeah. Well, you know, I saw a lot of theory books during that time and I was also giving piano lessons and this kind of thing. And, and everybody want, has an approach for how, how shall we teach music. And so many students were confused and even I was confused. And different books said different things. They conflicted with each other. They were unclear. They were difficult to follow. I didn't understand. I said, well, why, why is this such a, a difficult thing to teach, and why is it in such disarray, and why, why are all these systems so... I mean, yeah, okay, there's a few things you see kind of similar. We know something sharps, flats, a circle of fifths, a certain diagrams. But as you got deeper into it, there seemed to be an enormous amount of inconsistency and, and confusion and abstraction. And largely it seemed to me because it was taught in a uh, kind of nonlinear symbolic way, just a sort of, this is how it is, and learn it, you know, and, and memorize it. There is no reason behind anything. Why is it this way? How did it come to be this way? Why is there a missing note, the black note, between some of the white notes on the keyboard? How come they're not continuous black notes all the way through? All these, like, silly questions. I, it, this seemed very, must be a reason for these things, and um, and, of course, everybody was kind of confused, and all the kids coming in were taking the theory exams and the dictation and all this, and 95% and were flunking it and having to take remedial courses when they came in. And getting out of the school was, was equally as hard for a lot of them, and I just thought, well, this is a, like a major problem. So um, when the uh, offer to write this book came to me, 
um, I thought, all right, well, here, here's my opportunity. Now, you know, the wooden book format is, is quite small and very concise. So, you know, we can't go to the level of depth we might like to, you know, write a, a proper theory book of hundreds of pages long, as many of them are. However, I felt as though, you know, I can kind of take what I believe to be a clear presentation of this that I have culled myself over all these years now and package it here and put it in the same order, much as I would do for a new piano student or something, uh, and lay it out in this book in, in as clear a way as I think is possible. So that was the point. I, I wanted to make a book that was comprehensible and uh, easy to follow. So then you walk away and, and you, you have, you know, Satori's, you have, you have uh, understanding. You say, oh, I see. That makes sense, you know. And that, so that was the basic goal. Um, it, it's a bit of a contemplative book because, you know, you, because we don't have that room, there's all these diagrams and, and images, and they are there to take the place of what, you know, 10 or 20 other pages would in text. So you got to kind of go through it more than once. See, it's not you could read it in a forty-five minute sitting, but in order to really absorb and, and get what's going on, it would you know have to kind of come back to it. And so that that was the basic motivation. What is music? Ah, uh, good question. Well, I mean, we all have a different sense of that. I, uh, you know, it, it's a tapestry of relationships you might say it's it's poetry without words um it gives life to non-visual things it's it's something that we follow it carries us but yet we don't it, it expresses these ineffable proto-emotional kinds of things you know it can it can uh, move us and it has this power in a way that let's say painting or uh, visual arts don't to the same extent um, so music being a narrative art form I think you know you look at film or theater maybe dance um, novels reading a novel certain literature genres uh, also have that quality because they happen through time. So time is a very, very big component. Um, there's one line in my book uh, that I think kind of captures it best. Uh, and let's see if I've got it off the top of my head. I, I don't at the moment, but it's right in that first page where that question is asked. Here it is. It is the texturization of the deliquescence of time, the ebb and flow of mood and meaning. So, you know, we hear relationships. We hear a certain group of notes. Then we hear another group of notes. And right away, as pattern-matching creatures that we are, we detect a similarity and also a, a difference and music is this uh, place where we can track those changes and those relationships and proportions. So, I mean, it's still perhaps a mysterious thing, but it's, it's, it's 
vibration, harmony, sound. It's all those things, and it's a song, song of the world. Discuss the order of the universe and vibration. Right. So if you think for a moment of the various um, kinds of frequencies and, and radiations, the radiation spectrum, so you've got on one end uh, atoms and subatomic particles, and they have a periodicity, and, and they vibrate and move at a certain rate of spin, um, and as you start to pull that down, you'll get to visible light spectrum and the rainbow. and There's all different speeds of frequency and radiation. And if you continue on down, we there get to eventually, after we go through different electromagnetic waves and radio and television and all that, and cell phones, we get down to the audible sound range. And then down below there, it, it just keeps on slowing down, and you get vibration on a larger scale, ever larger, and also, you know, rhythm is down there. Um, so you could say that all form is a kind of music, right? I mean, just the audio version, the oral version is the one we give that name. But uh, you might, if, just as people say, the, the poetry of the universe or the poetry of, of a painting, uh, a, music is also a, a poetry. And what is poetry? You know, it's, it's a kind of collection of forms relating to each other. And that relationship, the perception of those relationships and that dance is what is musical. So, all, you know, all things kind of have a frequency, a vibration, a harmony. We're all kind of what fields, harnessing molecules together in a certain structure. And in a sense, that is a harmony that is music. So I, I think the actual music we're talking about here, you know, is a kind of metaphor for these principles working on all scales of the cosmos, all the way up and all the way down. What is the overtone series? Right. So that's a very central focus of my book, um, and I believe it to be the generative force of music itself. Um, we might be most familiar with it by the vowels that we use so for in all languages share in various forms so for example you you kind of close your mouth very quietly and as you open it the vowel sound is changing what's happening is different overtones are coming out or being suppressed and what overtones are essentially, or harmonics, as they're often also called, basically any vibrating uh, body or air moving through a tube or a reed vibrating, such as our uh, larynx voice box or string vibrating, it will vibrate, of course, in its full length. So uh, that's the lowest sound that we hear. But what also happens, and this is a, just a, a natural process of acoustics, 
that very same body or space will vibrate at whole number ratios smaller. So that means it'll vibrate in half and in thirds and in fourths, fifths, sixths, and so on. Those get progressively weaker and quieter as they are obviously smaller. So the ear is a remarkable instrument as well. And what it does is assemble those sounds back together. There are, in fact, multiple tones happening in all, anything we perceive as a pitch, as opposed to noise, you know, there's no pitch, um, that has, it'll, it'll have harmonics, it'll have overtones, and those overtones fit this, this whole number ratio grid as a, as a kind of a stencil or template that we, that the ear will overlay and in the cochlea, uh, we can pick up these various partials. We assemble them into one tone, and we get this, uh, what we call tone color or timbre. So, obviously, with vowels, we've, we've sort of looked at that. Uh, there's a great metaphor for this in, um, in the Hindu thought. There, there's the, the Aum, which is supposedly, uh, this, was, this is how Brahma, Brahma creates the universe. And there's this silence, and then out of that silence, and this is a popular meditative sound, would come that, and so if you've pronounced that with all the proper training and, and the full shape of the mouth from start to finish, you've actually traversed the whole spectrum of overtones. Um, and it's a marvelous metaphor, because in a sense, the the universe comes out of this quiet ground and, and comes into existence. It goes through this complete cycle and then it returns. I mean, it's an incredible thing. So, well, I mean, I wanted to demonstrate, though, because it's one thing to talk about it, but we should hear it, right? Um, what these actually sound like. And so here, I, there's, we have our piano here. And what I can do is hold down one note I'm holding down a low C, and I'm going to play the note above it one octave higher. And you can't see this, but what's happening is the lower, the first note that I placed down and just lifted the mute off is vibrating. But I'm not, I didn't touch it. What's happened is I've excited the string in, in sympathetic vibration by the octave above. I'll, I'm going to do it in the reverse now. Can you hear it? Yes. Okay, so that's the double of frequency right there. If I want to triple the frequency, here it is. Can you hear that? Indeed. So, that's what we call the fifth. Do, re, mi, fa, so. And so those are the first two overtones are the octave, and then the fifth. And then there's the next one, which is the fourth, and we all recognize that because the next phrase goes. I'm kidding. So this is the next one, major third. So we all know this sound, right? This is a major chord. I think most people would say, oh, yeah, I, I know this. Okay, it keeps going like that. So double, triple, quadruple, which is 
twice the double, five times the first note, six, seven, eight, and notice the doubling there, eight, four, two, one. Harmonic progression. So. And that's about as approximate as I can do it on the piano. There, we, of course, they, they start getting s smaller than these steps can reflect because they're getting closer and closer together each time. But look what's going on. This is a very interesting thing that we have. So right here, for example, this is, you might say, nature's chord. There is a major triad built into every sound by default. Now you say, well, I hear notes all the time or somebody singing. I don't hear a chord going there. And it's true because the ear is assembling them. And what you're hearing is the timbre. And that's how you know whether it's this or that opera singer or, or a bassoon or a oboe. That's how we distinguish the color, even if they're doing the exact same pitch. If you think of a trumpet in the earlier days, you know, a, a, a horn with no valves, uh, like a bugle, the way they would play melodies was by changing the embouchure of their lips, and in so doing, they'd be playing different notes of the overtone series. And so if you think of like the three most common melodies that you hear on those instruments, you'd have... Uh, right? Or you have... Uh, right? Or taps. Sure. Right, so those are right there out of the overtone series. So this is so important. It completely informs all musical thought all around the world. Now it is inflected a little different from culture to culture, um, but it has lots and lots of consistencies and similarities. Not only which, but it reflects what I believe to be a clear timeline of musical thought through history. And if you're familiar with concepts like Great Chain of Being, um, that Gene Gebser's work or Ken Wilber, um, basically you can look at evolution as an ascent through the series. Um, so perhaps I might walk you through that. Please do. Okay. Well, this was my thesis um, for my doctorate, which also involved a, uh, an orchestra composition and a uh, paper to describe it. Uh, I, was a, I was a little off the beaten path in doing this, but they, they let me do it, and I was quite glad. So essentially, I, I wrote a piece where there at first was this complete chaos that I called the sort of the primordial, uh, the, the, the prima materia, you know. And so all the intervals and all the rhythms and everything was kind of there going all at once, and it builds up to a kind of frenzy, and then out comes this first note, which we call the, the fundamental. Now, if you look back on Western music history as much as we know of it, going back at least as far as the Greeks, if not farther, we tend to know that music was essentially monophonic, so it was one note at a time. And you might have something along these lines. <laughs> 
to our modern ear, we say, oh, it's like uh, Gregorian chant or something like that. Uh, now, the composition I wrote then continues, and each section brings out a new interval. So the next section starts with a... your octaves and there's the fifths fourths right so uh, the whole piece kind of unfolds little by little that way and as does our musical history so obviously we've just kind of went through early middle medieval era just now we, we did Gregorian chant and the first bits of what's called organum which is this, right? And that sounds familiar. Sure. Okay, so, so far we have our first partials or harmonics of the series making their appearance. So this was in the days of the church and the church said, okay, these are the perfect intervals. They are the only ones we shall use. So, for example, we had a sound like this. And they said, oh, no, no, no. This is Diabolus in Musica. This is the devil. The devil in music. The tritone. So we, we have to fix it. And in a sense, that they're not all together off. These are what I would call structural intervals. Because they are the strongest. They are the most resonant. They are the first harmonics. As we ascend, they have the most prominence in our ear. Okay, so, kind of sneak on into the late medieval, early Renaissance era, something happens and a new sound starts to show up. And that's not the same anymore. There's a new note that's come in. And it's the third. But it was a little hidden, and it wasn't always a structural presence. It kind of would, would sneak in and sneak out. Those were called the imperfect consonances. So I mean, we all know consonants and dissonances, I, I, I'm going to assume, or should I sort of clear that up real quick? I suggest you clear that up. Yeah, consonance is essentially... In, in the simplest of terms, we think of notes that sort of, quote, go together. They, they seem uh, harmonious and they blend. This would be a consonance. And that. And that. And that. But say you heard something like this. And those have, those don't seem quite to blend the same way. They interfere with each other. They, they have friction. And I think that's not a terribly subjective thing. Can, can, do you hear it? It's almost like it makes the hair on your back stand up. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you may like that sort of thing. I wouldn't say that one is good. Well, you know, it would be, it would be like, you know, those, those screeching sounds you would hear in a horror movie or something. Mm. Yeah, it's like... Psycho. Yeah, there you go. Right. That's a great example. So, yeah, those are tone clusters. It's multiple notes together at the same time. And, and right, so dissonance is this 
certain intervals where the notes do not blend, do not go together, they're very far away in terms of how well they relate to each other. They don't fit into our little system here, our grid, our overtone structure. And we can show that just by playing one now. <laughs> that guy just sticks right out of there. So that's the basic premise of consonance and dissonance. So these are the perfect consonances as were permitted by the church. And slowly... So, so this is why language used to be a part of harmonic study, because you have consonants and vowels and, and these things that tie it directly into language. Because in the ancient quadrivium, language, harmony, and music were all one study. Yeah, I, I would think that would tie in particular to prosody and the musicality of speech, and that you would be paying close attention to, uh, you know, how you articulate sounds. That, to me, seems to be related to kind of what we're talking about here now. Um, I mean, one difference being, and perhaps a big one, that these are simultaneities, two sounds at once. But yes, there's still something to be observed and understood here about the consonant relationship and the dissonant relationship. And one could, for example, modulate their, their tone and their inflection along a certain range. So say I'm, we're, I'm talking about here, this seems to be my register. So if I start talking like this, I've got a certain declamatory quality, but I've, the intervals are somewhat distantly related to each other. And that might be different than if I were talking to a small child. I, I might, uh, you know, Sammy, what's for dinner? You know, it, certain intervals are more mm, simpatico with each other. They, they blend more readily and others strike more dissonant on the ear, even when not played together. So uh, in that sense, you, you, you raise a good point. But for now, I, I'm, this being a history of harmonic thought, I, I wanted to kind of show how the intervals come into play in the different eras and, and what they represent about people. Or so I believe. Um, so in the Renaissance, for example, now the beginning of the secularization of society, yes, where the church is having less power. And in, in, before that, everything is sort of in the eyes of God. And even the text, it's all the mass and, and the requiem, and it, you know, there's no, we're not singing about anything else. Now, in the Renaissance, secular subjects come in, and inside that structure of the fifth comes the voice of people, of humans. The third. So, it's, it's an amazing thing. So, incre increasingly, that starts to become a uh, player in our musical structure and hangs out. It becomes less infrequent, less temporary. It's not quite tonality as we understand it today. They hadn't quite gotten there yet, but 
modal, we call that, you know. So the third comes in. Go through the Renaissance into the Baroque. The next interval arrives. This one, this one is very important. This is the seventh, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The seventh starts us moving around. It wants to resolve, it wants to do something. It's not content to sit there all by itself. Right, up until that point, this was perfectly stable, calm, relaxing. Even if I were to negate it with minor, yeah, it's a little more tense, there's a little darkness to that in some way as compared to that sound, but it's stable. But when the seventh comes in, no longer are we stable. And there's that devil, the tritone. He now has arrived and is a structural presence. And it has a dynamic, active quality. We call it dominant. So it wants to move. It wants to go somewhere, do something. And most performance practice at that time would move it like that. And then if we do, were to do it again, feels like we're kind of going around something in a kind of circle of some kind, which in fact we are. Um, I'll fast forward a, a couple more eras and then we'll come back to what, what it is I'm playing right there. So Bach is really the guy in the West who brings this system together, tonality as we understand it, and in his well-tempered clavier in which he writes a piece in every conceivable key, major and minor, of which there are 24, after that we enter the classical era, so our, you know, people we know there, Mozart, Haydn, and early Beethoven, and that's, you know, so there, again, with simple triads, these three-note chords, and that seventh chord. So, but this is interesting because it's not music about mm, people so much as it is, that's why we call it classical, I believe, is because it's about the system, about the music system itself. It's what is the most inevitable place for this sound to next go. It's is it there. possible that it's related to the, or that it's called classical music because of the classical arts or the classical seven liberal arts? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. It's a word that comes later, right? I mean, it wasn't, they did not call it that themselves. I, they were probably recovering the Greek ideal, much as opera was born the same way, um, of trying to mirror life and nature. So, in that sense, yeah, I, I, you know, it's classical in that it, we, the music is about highlighting and illustrating natural principles. It's not about 
me being angry and, and expressing my anger and my music and this kind of thing, which is much more a romantic ideal, right, which is coming next after that. But, uh, yeah, this is all about the system. We're going to glorify the beauty of the system, the hierarchy of these tones. Some are very closely related, some are very distantly related, and we're going to uh, sort of unfurl, if you like, those relationships in all of these fortuitous compositions, which is why somebody like Mozart or Haydn could churn out 40 symphonies or more quite easily. Uh, the system and Bach even more music than that. These systems were so clear and so uh, self-evident. Evident. Well, I wanted to say not quite that, something more teleological, you know, they, they sort of have a drive to themselves. They, they write themselves. The rules are already inherent to the resources from which the music is being built, are being built. So those overtones already set up all these relationships. All right. So the Romantic era comes next and Beethoven is our bridge to that. And now the, it's really about the individual. So you see Every individual, before it was all God, then slowly it comes to be society, and now it's the, the individual, like every individual is a God, you could say. And I see um, Romanticism as, you know, the birth, and then into Expressionism, this is very much, um, I think, the idea. And you hear it in the music, because now we have even more complicated harmonic sounds. <laughs> all over the place and there are more alien or foreign tones there but still they're, they're part of the series too they're just coming from up higher right the ninth remember our number one two three four five six seven eight nine okay and that moves forward of course we know those composers we think of Chopin list um, in particular Brahms Tchaikovsky and now we start to dip over Towards the end of the century, here's where it gets interesting. End of the 19th century. Right there. Now, remember our devil, the, the tritone? Now, another tritone has arrived. Except it is a tritone from the fundamental, from our starting note. And so, it's, it's kind of flipped the whole thing over in a way. And this is the point where the system starts to break down. Let's say we certainly know Debussy and Ravel and those folks, they, they wrote these kind of complex sounds. And the whole tone scale and octatonic. So these are symmetrical structures. Those are interesting because instead of this duality of uh, beginning, middle, and end, which is all based on asymmetry, we instead now have symmetry in music. And it's ambiguity, questions. They lead to more questions. 
This is a fascinating time in music history and one of my personal favorites. It sounds a lot like jazz also to, to my ear. So the idea is this, this active chord, this dominant chord, this seventh chord, which is heading, has all these extra tones added to it. It's such an entity unto itself. It's such an unstable thing. And the more you start stringing those things around, you've, you've entered a world that's self-consistent. And so the urge to resolve them, to, to sort of take them there, to take them to some restive place, starts to go away. So we hear less of these triads and things, and we start hearing just more and more of these active... Schoenberg, Mahler, uh, turn-of-the-century composers. This also leads to what's known as atonality, where basically the whole structure of, of these recognizable intervals, those early intervals that we discussed, the fifths, the octaves, all are gone, basically. So instead, music starts to sound... composers deliberately avoided fifths, fourths, any interval that would suggest a ground, a tonality. And in that sense, it looks as though we've sort of exhausted the series because the intervals start getting even smaller. But that too has found its way into music. We have microtones and quarter tones, and electronic music. It just kind of continued uh, throughout the early 20th century. And I believe that since World War II, We've been in a period of going back and rehashing and, ch and rediscovering this whole series again. Uh, for example, do you, do you recognize this melody? Let me see. Maybe very vaguely. It's a song by R.E.M. called Losing My Religion. Oh, <laughs> that's pretty funny. But it sounds a lot like uh, chant to me, as does a lot of rock and roll. Um, and we've been in a period of neo this and retro that, and everything's been kind of uh, going back through things, you know. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because recently I had Christopher Knowles on my show, and we went into the, the mystery origins of music, and he shows how all of the current music themes that are coming out tie back to the old, like, mystery religions and various different types of, uh, well, what he does is he researches these descriptions of, of, of different ancient music types yeah. and compares them to different styles of rock music and modern music and the like, and it's, uh, you know, I think he's... Uh, stumbled upon something that that when you see his work or read his book it's kind of like oh duh you know oh yeah uh, like the sirens and you have uh music like Susie and the banshees or cock two twins or or right you know and uh and and uh, the heavy metal were these guys you know he compares them to these ancients i i forget who but these guys that would go around banging their heads and slamming their warrior uh 
their clouds and their, their, their exactly skills. together and and you know so you know it's like here today we have heavy metal and it's this screaming right. raging music and he makes right. all of these correlations that i think are are quite fascinating which you're talking about this evolution of music and then now we're going back and rehashing since the 19 i think you said 40s so that would exactly parallel with what christopher knowles was saying uh but from a, a different completely different point of view I, I think it's quite likely true absolutely um I mean, for example, look at if you just look at uh, percussion and the presence of percussion in in Western music. Uh, you know the earliest, if you let's say go back again to the uh, Baroque and the typical continuo orchestra, which has a set of strings and it harpsichord, uh, and there might have been mm, a couple wind instruments there, but not many. You find uh, no, there's no timpani. There's no cymbal crash. There's, you know, that none of that's there yet. In the classical era, and, and I guess if, if, if it's these uh, world fairs or something with Turkey, I, I, I can't remember exactly how it started, but there was the trade mercantile thing was starting to get really big, and music was coming to Europe and all this, and they heard these sounds, and so, okay, somebody decides, you know, let's, let's try that cymbal in, in our piece. Slowly, those come in. Uh, next, uh, eventually, the, t- the timpani or kettle drum, as used to call, also shows up. And you can kind of follow it along like that. So you ask yourself, how much noise has there been? Noise element, meaning not pitch, right? So consonants instead of vowels. And I mean consonant with a T, not consonants, but consonants. And that's sibilants and fricatives and all that kind of... Uh, the things that stop and start sound and articulate them. That's what percussion is, isn't it? And that is increasingly present in music through time. And most interestingly, the Industrial Revolution comes and percussion is is even more prominent. And what's happened in the last, what, 30 years or so is kind of the digital age has, has more or less taken full hold and likewise the kinds of sounds we now hear all kinds of distortion and and noise and to say nothing of synthesizers and electronic music in general but it's become whatever these sounds in our environment are are incorporated into our music the music is again this the song of those people in that time it has their worldview it has their gestalt, it has their emotional state in it. So yeah, if we're an army, we're going to make noise and pull ourselves together and have very rhythmic, strong music to kind of get us organized and, and harmonize us, so to speak, on a rhythmic level, on a body level. So that's another thing to think about, right? We sort of, if you think of us as three centers to our being, head, heart, and body, then you could say that the body is the place of rhythm and the heart is the place of harmony and the head the mind is the place of melody and I found it very useful to look at music that way Um, and I think that would also prove to work with gentlemen's work that you've been describing Uh, it could be tracked in that way so whatever function a particular music has 
it works in those different domains. It's for those different purposes, and whether it's a stylistic thing or a contextual thing, uh, you can track it like that. Jason, let's go further into comparing and contrasting music to the other arts. Right. If, if you remember our exposition earlier as we were ascending in the series, and you think, okay, well, people are hearing that same sound over and over for centuries and sort of mining it and, and pulling out, so to speak, more and more of its constituents. Early visual art, at the same time, let's say this is the medieval era again. And remember we were saying it all is through the eyes of God, right, in a sense, and or the church. And so there are no thirds, there's no major or minor here. It's iconic, it's monolithic, monophonic, mono-mono, it's God is one, right? And the visual arts, I find, have that same quality from that era. Clearly there's no perspective, really, in the visual art. In it's, it's rather iconic, there's no respect to size or proportion in real-world space. So the king is a sort of large figure on the field and the servants or peasants or worshippers, whatever, are, are quite small and tiny, um, ridiculously so in some cases. So, and what's going on? It's, it's about their importance or their, their placement in society. So this is not about depicting, uh, it's not about representing what we see through our eyes. But what is seen from above, so to speak, or in the mind of, of contemplation and of concept. Now, something happens around the 12th, 13th, 12th century or so. Uh, two voices come in at once. Two voices at the same time. One's kind of slow, as you notice, and the other was a little more active. And that increases as years pass. But around that same time, the visual arts are doing something quite interesting. Perspective is coming in. And so, notice also we had our third. One, two, three. So, a couple things there. There's a dimensionality that has shown up in the music as well. It's not just one melody at once. There are now two, it would seem. And these intervals higher up in our series have appeared. And as we were saying earlier, this is sort of the voice of, of the individual, of people. Their, their thirdness with their emotions, their happy and sadness, so to speak. And perspective, visual perspective in the visual arts where you could actually see uh, what, what you saw with your eyes, not the eyes of God, was what you saw on the page and the idea of a vanishing point and all that kind of thing. So I find that very remarkable, personally. Um, and that goes on from there. So representationalism takes on a whole new level. As you go through Baroque and Classical era, 
It's all about how close to ideal reality can we get. And if you kind of fast forward that a bit then to the Romantic era, the subject matter then begins to change, right? And, and we're, we're seeing uh, more and more images of uh, death, of... Oh, I should actually mention there's an interesting correlation about subject matter. We go from totally liturgical to mythological, right? And then we go to a kind of narrative that is just about people in general. And this is the subject matter in, in, in opera, the subject matter in paintings. It's, it's what, are, what, what are we dealing with? What's the focus? What is the icon, right? So from gods to mythological gods or deities, if you like, or demigods, uh, to actual people like you and me here in the world, like Shakespeare, Right? I mean, a lot of Shakespeare was not terribly different than contemporary movies. So, again, we see this secularization, we see this, this enlightenment, this is sort of the individual is taking a rising uh, pr prominence in cultural consciousness. It's, it's less about us, it's more about me. And the music reflects that, and the arts reflect it as well. Uh, straight through the 19th century, Paintings are getting wilder and more expressive, and of course, by the end there, we start getting all of these experimental movements. Um, a comparison that Debussy hated was Impressionism, of course. This is, you think of Manet and Monet and what a lot of those painters were doing. The things were suggestive and, and gestural. They were not uh, as concrete and representational. This would be a highly representational musical phrase. And this would be a far more suggestive one. It's colored. It's it's blurred. It's 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 got stuff added to it, right? So, like Mister Rogers or something, you know. <sighs> right. In a sense, well, it's something. It's, I'm not saying it's dreamland or, or it's false. It's just we are looking in the, well, actually, maybe we can, but in a good way. I mean, dreams, right? This is the, the unconscious is becoming a focus. And what's going on in, in the world of ideas? Freud, Jung, Nietzsche, you know, Schopenhauer, all these sort of idea people, people, phenomenology, hey, all this stuff is now from what's inside is what's becoming increasingly more important and it's what's coming out in the music as well and this is reflected in so many ways I don't even think we have time to cover it sufficiently um, just in terms of keys and chromaticism the sort of how many of these half steps we get and the the way things move and modulate and the subject matter and it's just it's unbelievable but yeah I see a complete correlation between art, music, and ideas spanning entire Western history, absolutely. And it continues to this day. And, you know, of course, the 20, 20th and 21st century were and still are about various kinds of increasing kinds of expressionism and abstraction. So, you know, obviously you have your Kandinsky's and, and those folks, uh, but, but that continued. Even uh, minimalism, 
right? And artists like Rothko and, and Donald Judd uh, had their equal contemporaries in music, uh, still some of whom are absolutely thriving today, Philip Glass, John Adams, uh, Terry Riley, the, these minimalist composers who are now bringing in Eastern ideals as well about uh, timelessness and, and no linearity, no progression. It's just a sort of almost a Zen idea about music, and it just goes to the bare bones. So for example, this is a, a little snippet of a piece by Philip Glass. And then there are two other sections, but they're built very much the same way with a couple different chords and intervals. And I'm, this guy really got a lot of folks in the ivory tower angry. They said, how is this, because he's quite popular and successful and still is. And people say, well, how is it that just a couple intervals and like this, uh, making all this money, you know, and, and, and the ivory tower folks, of course, were toiling day and night to come up with these incredible, complex, architectonic, melodic, harmonic, orgasmic structures and, and, and permutations and set rows and, and interval theory and all, you know, all kinds of fabulous cerebral concoctions. Um, and they'd get pissed off at this seemingly very simple thing, which you could just as easily have heard in a uh, Mozart slow movement of a symphony, where you'd have... It's a very popular accompaniment pattern. So they didn't understand. And they said, what is the appeal? Why, why is this? Why do people like this? And I loved it personally. Um, and I think it had something to do. I mean, I'm also a painter. And I'm more interested in, in colors and shapes and forms and gestures and what they mean than... I am to see them assembled in some giant representational package. There are interesting things to be seen there. So Rothko is a great example. There's just a whole painting is about a color, right? And so in a sense, a lot of Philip's work, this, this piece is a good example. It's about a certain relationship of intervals and rhythms. And they're very few. Two against three. And the shifting grid of, of relationship. So this is nothing like, you know, a kind of... This long-winded thematic tirade. I mean, that's great stuff too, don't get me wrong, but how utterly different, you know? And I thought it was remarkable. I, I actually think Glass genius what he did. And he built a whole system around this stuff. Um, so yeah, that's got its correlation in in visual arts through minimalism. Uh, we are still at it. We've been what since then deconstruction and postmodernism. Uh, it just keeps going. So yeah, it's, I don't even not even sure where we are because we tend not to name these movements until we're at, we're past we're through them. You know, we can't see them yeah. until we're out of them. 
All right, let's go into some theory. How does the overtone series govern and shape things like scales, intervals, and melodies? Yes. Okay, so we've sort of done the harmony part a little bit, and hopefully we can remember some of that. And I'll, I'll play that again. So as for scales, this is important. When you look at those overtones, the first different sound, that's not different. I mean, it's, it's not the same note, but it is the same note. It's just an octave higher, but it is not a, a, another uh, tone that is unlike the first. It's the same note, just higher. And we can identify. However, the next one is different. That's our fifth again. The fifth is, therefore, by most accounts, the most important resonant interval. And each note reinforces the other. And most music in the world have fifths. In fact, they all do. As far as I know, I mean, you might look at a Bushman playing didgeridoo and say, where's the fifth? You know, but those things are replete with overtones. Those, you know, all that variety and sound you're hearing is overtones. It's generated as is with Tuban throat singers and Tibetan monks. So fifth is still there uh, in a sense. So this fifth has some interesting properties that we should probably check out here. What if I start stacking them? Okay, how many was that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So when I've done that, if I were then to collapse them all down, it'd sound like this. What have I got? I've built a scale already just then. Let's take five fifths. Just five. And we'll collapse those to one octave. And what is that? Pentatonic scale. Sounds a bit Asian to our ear or like wind chimes. You could also find it, it's the black notes. That's the same, another progression of five fifths. So fifths are a critical structural component of most musical systems. If I grab that one there, I now have major scale. So... Let's look at the other intervals for a moment. We have the half step. So that just kind of goes on like that, and you'll notice it completely uh, divides the octave into equal parts, right? In, in, in our system, 12. And I'm not sure how well that was covered on your in the other interview. I didn't get a chance to hear it, but... Um, there's always the question, why, why 12 notes, right? Um, have we, has that been covered in another interview with you? 
I don't know if Hans covered that or not. I don't remember off the top of my head. I have to go back. So go ahead and cover it just to we'll be go safe. Real quick, yeah, this is not a, we won't go back. It's just part of the fifths part. So, so here we got the, again, the fifths going up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. When I go for thirteen, that's supposed to be the very first, the same note that I started with. It's quite far away, but it's the one. Now, there are issues with tuning that maybe is beyond the scope of our session here, um, but it will be a little sharp, and this has to do with the logarithmic curve of pitch and the fact that all those 3 to 2 relationships don't add up to a 12 to 1. So what has to happen is uh, there's a little bit of a tweak. We, we, the comma of Pythagoras, it's called the comma. It's like 20 cents sharp, and we have to pull that down and redistribute it, and that's how we end up with these various tuning systems of the world. But it's close enough where the ear says, you know, that's the same note pretty much. So if we could kind of nip and tuck that in there, it's kind of like the calendar, right? We have leap year and... and to have little fudge cycles because it's it's, it's, uh, <laughs> right. it's circular and it's fluid and liquid and and we try to lock it into a grid but boy it just kind of fights us doesn't it so anyway, twelve fifths and we're for this discussion we're back where we started so that gives us a finite set that says okay well there's our twelve months our twelve uh, zodiac signs our this, how many 12s can you think of? You know, that's, that's quite a, a convenient number. And we have a million examples. So that's how we get 12. Now, we were going over the intervals. So clearly we, we understand fifths now. Uh, but now we're going to start from the bottom, the small ones, the half step, which we just did. That's a symmetrical interval because it takes an equal amount of them to fill an octave without any repetition or breaking or whatever. How about the whole step, which is two of those half steps. It sounds like this. That also is symmetrical. We heard that earlier. That's Debussy's calling card. Okay. What about the minor third? That also divides the octave equally. So far, they're all symmetrical. How about the major third? Remember the major third? That, as well, divides the octave equally. So what's going on? Are, are all the intervals symmetrical? Well, what's next is the fourth. Aha! That's the one that shoots us out into outer space, and which is the inversion of the fifth. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, right? So the fifth and the fourth are asymmetrical. They do not split the octave into any symmetrical part. And there's one left we haven't done. Once again, the devil, the tritone. And that too is symmetrical. It divides it right in half. So, 
what we've just discovered is all intervals are symmetrical except the fifth. So for that reason, as well as the fact that it is the first different tone in the series and the most resonant and strongest one, those two reasons combined, uh, in my view, are what make it the generative interval in music and, and why we build the whole system around it as well as in the West, our chordal structure. Um, so those are the intervals and melodies, right? So say, okay, that's all great. I've got these intervals. Now what? How, how does that come? How do you get happy birthday or, or you know, uh, any reasonable melody out of that? And how do we perceive it? And how is this whole thing working? Basically, again, as soon as I set up that sound, I've also set up the universe of scale and tone and interval that goes with it. Even if I hadn't played it yet, it, it, it's in your ear. Literally. <laughs> the overtones are in your ear. So, say a melody comes in and it wants to do something like this. Right? So that two of those tones were, of course, very user-friendly and they fit right, right into our series, but that first one was not. So it had an expressive quality. It's, it's doing something, right? It's, it's pushing or pulling, it's, and it falls. So what you discover in, in that scale... You have certain tones are stable and resting, and others are more transitional. They want to move. Right? Where does that want to go? Did you want it to go there also? Why not? How about, well, I, we don't want to impose these ideas. We want to, to verify it with your own ear. Uh, how about this one? That one sounds a little off right there. And what if it went there? That sounds on, whatever that means. <laughs> off and on. Good. Hey, that's all we need. That works, right? So, I mean, what we're trying to do is confirm with our ears. We don't want to take this from on high as like, this is how it works. Learn it and memorize it, and that's what it is. We want to. So you're actually teaching us how to understand music instead of regurgitate yes, what sir. some teacher tells us. Yes, sir. That's exactly right. Well, that's what the trivium and quadrivium are all about, so thank you. That's right. And, and that's, there's something underneath there that is guiding this whole thing. That is a natural phenomenon. And it's those overtones. So. Right? So, melodies are a series of mm, pushes, pushes and pulls, if you like, against these gravity points of that scale, which of course again is still coming from those overtones. Now, you say, okay, I, I can follow that so far. What about, the, there's, there's 12 notes, I've only heard about seven, so what's up with the other five, right? So let, let's hear some of those for a moment, let's gonna see what they do. Aha. Uh -huh. 
That's got a different quality if, than if I were to do its its more relaxed cousin. Right? Major second, and the other was a minor second. And of course, we in the West say, aha, it's Eastern, it's Indian, it's some other, it's that exotic stuff over there. And yeah, okay, they, they use that interval. So do the Spanish. But it's it has a more what tighter more contracted feeling could we do it somewhere else ah we sure can and that's that's quite powerful i would say it's yearning right it's the fifth is so strong and i want to pull away from it So there's a sense of striving going on. And I just played a phrase from Ravel's Bolero. Right? Um, so the way those notes push and pull against those stations create these degrees of tension and release. And it's not just a harmonic tension and release, but it's intervallic for the melodies. Just just one note at a time. So certain notes decorate, right? Other notes are more negating. As you said, that one doesn't go. It negates what our ear wants, which is this third here. But then we get it and we say, ah, thank you. So, and there's something interesting. We hear that in jazz a lot. What's going on? We're getting both the major chord and its minor companion at the same time so we have to be okay with ambiguity and we are so you set up a structure you create certain tensions there's that same guy I've set up these tensions right on the strong beat each time. There's one here. Tension, release, right? And then I do another one. All release, release. That's fine. Now, here's the genius of the melody. The largest tension of all. And it goes right on your name. And that's that. It's actually a brilliant melody, just for that reason. And the way we have a set of expectations built on the relationship between these gravity points and these mm, these moving active points. And then we progress and build a set of relationships that we can compare through time, one to the previous, one to the next. And 
the first one informs us about the second, the second informs about the third, and you get an overall structure as well. So there's a whole uh, rhetoric going on here of what they call generally the, the, the academic establishment traditionally call it motivic development. Uh, in my book, I call it epigrammatic transference, and I think that's obviously more syllables. Um, but I think it's more useful in a way, epigrams, because epigrams are these little nuggets, these core molecules of meaning. And the degree to which that meaning carries from one articulation of it to the next is its, its transference. And if you listen to music that way, as opposed to in terms of motivic development, which is a very Western notion exclusively and has more to do with various ways things are manipulated, this is something else. This is tracking change transference. How, how does an idea relate to itself through time as it sort of, as you look at it from this side and that side? And if you listen to in, you know, music you're not familiar with or comfortable with in that way, you'll find that you can follow it. You, even a different tuning system, different instruments, I don't understand the language, whatever. You can follow what's going on. Um, and that's kind of what I was aiming to do here. I mean, this, is, this book is fundamentally a Western music theory book. However, I do, at various points throughout, uh, refer to world music, different kinds of world music, and the similarities there. Because, in my opinion, as much as we can notice all these differences and things, really, music is music. It's all the same. It's, it's still that, there's that overtone series. That's a fact of nature. That does not change. And whatever clothes that it wears, as interpreted through people's minds, it's just clothes, yeah? It's just like language. It's vowels and consonants, regardless of the language. Uh, there are pronouns, generally, and certain practices of subject and object and all that. And that's all very important, but I, I think we get closer to a kind of understanding of universality and ubiquity and patterns if we can see the deep structure of these things and what's underneath and then you marvel at the clothes but you understand the system what about rhythm well, we were talking about that so you remember um how these are numeric relationships right so this with this frequency these number of times this this uh, this string vibrates per second. Let's say it's somewhere around, I don't know, uh, I can actually tell you exactly what it is. Why not? It's a little higher than 60. 60 is what you get in your wall, right? 60 cycle hum, it's about here. It's a B flat. Um, the C is what? 65, roughly. 0. 0.406 in our system. So 65, let's say. So this next one here is one. 130, right? And this one here would be 260 and so on. So those are number relationships. We're sort of doubling and tripling and quadrupling. Rhythm is very much the same thing. It's just a heck of a lot slower. So you think of rhythm, you have, you know, a pulse, beats, and we could subdivide. We can go half those and three of those. 
There's four. Five. And so on. So rhythm is, you could say there's a series, a harmonic series of rhythm. And it's the, the dividing of the beat, the pulse, into these smaller parts. And generally, when we hear a melody, of course, it's comprised of various rhythms, right? It isn't just one rhythm. It might be sometimes. Um, for example, if we hear just a steady one, boom, 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 we might think, oh, this is something auspicious. This is tribal. This is, uh, it, it puts us in a very instinctual, nonverbal kind of place. It, and it's insistent. It's, it's a heartbeat, isn't it? it boom, boom. In a sense, um, rhythm is life. There's day and night. There's there's reciprocity and duality. Uh, so rhythm is the mirror of the breathing and of the rhythmic nature of life and works, in my opinion, the same way as these overtones. And likewise, you would have strong areas of a rhythmic subdivision. So, you know, we divide in, in Western music, we divide things into measures and, and meter and beats. And so typically a lot of our music's in 4-4, four, four, as we say. So, um, and That's in 4-4. Four, four. You, you can kind of count to 4. Most, it's very, 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 very common. And anything that happens smaller than that inside of it pushes and pulls against it. Very much the same way as those intervals did. Against the strong parts of the, the gravity points of that scale. So if we have gravity points of a rhythm, see, then anything that's off the beat sticks out or has, has, has a, a different quality. But it's all in reference to that, to that pulse, right? So if you can kind of hold on to the idea of the overtones, you can also access rhythm in the same way. There is a set of relationships, there is a regularity, and there is something that pushes against it or pulls away from it. And that informs all the different rhythmic styles of the world, you know, if it's a or if it's a bossa nova, right? so all just we could sit here and do this forever, or you can get one of those keyboards, you know, that has all the buttons and plays them for you. But that, that's kind of what they do. And in my book, actually, there's a little uh, table in the back, um, appendix three, in which I just give a, a sort of wildly random sampling of rhythms of the world. In just that way, in just with strong and weak, two sounds where you can convey pretty much all you need 
to rhythmically capture those styles. And so, in other words, what seems very complex and embroidered on the surface is really uh, quite simple, built from a very simple premise underneath. Um, so that's how I approach rhythm, and that's how I try to teach it. And uh, you know that we there's more to it, but that's kind of the entry point there. And I, you know, given everything we'd like to try and cover, that's probably a good amount right there for rhythm. Harmony. I know we discussed it a little bit already, but let's talk about how it works, narratively speaking, and what is major happy and minor sad, and why, why not? Right. Well, that is a popular myth, and certainly I, I learned it as a kid, and we were all told that, you know, in order to recognize these sounds, we'd say, well, major is the happy sound, and... Minor is the sad sound, but as you got older, it wasn't always the case, you know. I started to hear, I mean, what's, what's this one here? Uh, mm. This sounds actually quite festive. Right? And that's minor. So, okay, the Eastern European ideal is kind of, uh, we're, we're unhappy, but we're happy about it. You know, we, we accept the, the suffering of life. It's all good. <laughs> and likewise. That is, that is such a Slavic attitude, yeah, you know. Right. And, and that's okay. The music kind of, it's the, the whole gypsy and Hungarian and that whole part of the world. It's, a lot of that music's in minor. And I, you'd be hard-pressed to say that it's sad. Some of it is, absolutely. But, um Let's see. What's that one? Right? This is very, and it just gets faster and faster, you know, Jewish music, a lot, a lot of that stuff. And it's all minor. Wow, wait a minute. So how can it, so that, that sort of breaks the rule. So it's not a rule, is it? So all minor really is our series, is a kind of negation of the major. It doesn't make it sad, necessarily. It just means that, I mean, how would you put it? Something is, mm, uh, it, now, I guess, I guess we should go a step further. It depends on the character of the music, right? So if I do this... Someone died. But when I was up here, right, it's all kind of fast and animated. Nobody's dead here. So minor itself is not conveying the idea. There's more. There's the rhythm, the character, the texture. Uh, all those elements conspire to tell us something. But nevertheless, we can say something's wrong. Either death is wrong. Suffering is wrong. But in one case, we're okay with it. And in the other case, we're, we're quite sad about it. We're resigned. So it's very interesting to me. Music can actually say things and express things. It's just not quite what we expect. So it's more proto-emotional. So, for example, let's go to major. 
say I do something like this. This is quite sad to me. It's pretty, but it's bittersweet. One of my favorite uh, composers, Harold Budd, collaborated with Brian Eno a great deal uh, at one point, uses these chords with total freedom. Now, it's just a major chord there. It's quite lovely, but... That guy, major seventh. Notice it doesn't resolve as we expected. So, bittersweet. This is a kind of I'm okay. It's sad, but I'm okay. It's different than celebrating. It's. We're okay. Now, how about. I'm aspiring. I want something. I'm reaching to something. I'm pleading for something. Reach for something. Acquire it. Want something more. No. Say, so I want to just say no. Asserting, and I'm in minor. They have all these names for these things, like you know, Mannheim Rocket and and uh, early uh, absolute musicologists. This is, this, we're talking about absolute music here, by the way, um, which is different than programmatic music. Um, but the idea is that the music itself communicates things. It says things like yes, no. Okay, stop, please. Um, I accept, I reject, I protest. Uh, I am grateful. Things like that. I'm celebrating. You know? So th to me, th that's a, a sort of proto-emotional universe. And the narrativity that you can get from these various chords and their relationships and how they move around because of those fifths and because of the scales that are generated by them. Already a whole world opens up of, okay, yeah, I see. It's kind of I'm borrowing from minor, and then I go back to major. Yes, yeah, so it's a sense of the, the tragic, but it comes out all right. This is a lot different. This is, of course, chords and modulation and moving around, chord progressions. We in the West are very linear, right? We just have beginning, middle, and end. You sort of leave your house, you go out, you have a bunch of experiences. Something in particular is great that happens, and you go home. Time you're done, you're, you're back, right? Or amen. Amen. Punctuation. There's your exclamation point. And here's your 
here's your question mark. And here's your comma. I'm not done. Ah, period. So, Eastern music is rather different, isn't it? It's got these... Let's go to India. This tambura is there. And it's always there. And the first thing you notice is there are no chords here. There's a scale, and it kind of runs together like that, and, you know, the sympathetic strings are all vibrating, but it's purely melody there. But always against this these fifths down here, this octave and fifth, again, and fourth, creating the space. So there's the sense of unity and eternity. Right? That's a lot different than our way of seeing the world. So this is cyclical. This is cycles. They have a tala. Rhythm cycle. We have a raga, which is a pitch cycle. Now, we have had such things in the West uh, come and go, even by similar names. We had something called a tal in the uh, late medieval, early Renaissance. It was an architectonic structure, it was a series of rhythms. So, we're not too far off here. And ragas are essentially like scales, like we have various major and minor. They've got a bunch of more, and we have we do too. But it's it's more than that. It's also a set of rules of how those notes behave, and which ones you use going up, and which ones you use going down. So, but the important thing we're noticing here is no harmony, no modulation. It's not like we suddenly go here and start grooving over there at some new place. No, no, no. Just stay here, the whole piece, forever. And there's no silence. Where's the rest? Where's the zero, right? Everything, there's none. Everything's floating from unity. Whether that's God or consciousness or whichever system. Vedic, Buddhist. There's something always there. So you always have a frame of reference, you have a context, you have what's called a still point. And from a tuning perspective, that means all the notes are tuned in relationship to that one note. That's different than our relativistic system where it's fifth to fifth to fifth to fifth to fifth, each to the other. Instead, everything to these, only this, octave and fifth. And then, of course, the tabla. It's highly rhythmic. Beautiful, intricate mathematic structures. So, to me, it's, it's very interesting. It reveals so much about how the people who are making those different kinds of music, it, it completely, it's a soundtrack to their pers perspective, to their world perspective. It, it, you, you hear how they view the world and themselves in it. It's a complete metaphor. Uh, any music has that quality. And it, if you listen to it in that way, you can hear it. So that's a little bit about, um, that's, that's 
obviously a bit there's more of course but that that gives you a quick sense of well okay chords obviously animate things they move things around we're quite familiar with that here in the west drone music doesn't do that the same obviously and we've discovered um here we can do one other bit so say you've got a melody uh we'll choose something like And we may know that as Twinkle Twinkle or the Alphabet Song. It's actually a theme that Mozart also um, used. Um, so we can harmonize that a number of ways. Here's the obvious way. Right? But what if I wanted to change that and do something different? That's got a bit of strangeness to it and ambiguity. We can take it even farther. And say, okay, well, melody's the same, but the chords are different. So the chords have some role in determining the inflection of the melody. What is the emotional state? Right? This is quite... innocent, you might say, whereas this kind of thing is a bit more contorted, a bit more conflicted. Uh, it's trying to find beauty. It's not sure if it can. It's, it's, it's seeking, yearning. Uh, now here we're, we're saying something when something's wrong. This is ominous. This is something to be concerned about, worried about. You see how the, the, the harmony can really change the effect. It's quite uh, powerful. As well as we noticed earlier, the, the texture. Whether we were kind of slow and resigned or if we were this dancing, upbeat kind of thing. So you combine those elements. The chords, the chord structure, the texture, the rhythm, and that influences the melody and the color of the melody, the sort of the overall emotional takeaway of what the tune is trying to say. Let's discuss themes, motifs, epigrams, dialectics, unity of opposites. What is that all about? Yeah. <clears throat> so we mentioned earlier about motifs and epigrams. Um, those are those core nuggets that a piece is constructed from. So think of this. Uh, right? So, probably all hopefully know that at Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Um, now, just what's going on? We have repeated notes. Bam, bam. Okay, and then we walk up the scale. We have another repeated note, and then we walk down the scale. And another repeated note, and another repeated note, and then another repeated note in a slightly different rhythm. So the rhythms shift around. We walk up, up and down, meandering completely. But you could say very clearly there is a... Uh, uh, 
a nugget, a molecule there. It's a repeated note and some kind of scale motion. Scale meaning going up or down scale-wise, stepwise. So music being a kind of fundamentally dialectical system, uh, and I'll just absolutely say the obvious, we're going either you're going up or down. You're either repeating or you're doing something different. You're either loud or you're soft. You are uh, curved and smooth or you are angular and sharp. So you could have sustained and long or staccato and short and frenetic. All of those are opposites, right? And we live in the world of opposites. It's the ultimate dialectic, subject and object. Everything is opposites. I think one of the greatest mysteries about music is it is a place where opposites can be together. It's probably true in the other arts as well, um, but it, it's so clear in music. Uh, and it's an amazing thing. So, so let's just go back to that theme. Okay. So not only did we identify the epigram or the motif, the, the, the little molecule... That's like four or five of them right there already, right? Then think of that whole thing as an assemblage, and it does it again. Except now we end over there instead of the first time we ended that way, second time we end there. So what happened? We had an A, B, and then an A, C. We had a little structure show up. And a phrase, two phrases, each much like the other, all built from the same building blocks, the same epigram. So what is this doing? Is it convincing us of something? I want you to know something about repeated notes. And scales. Okay, I buy it. So far, so good. I've, I've been convinced. Now what? Aha. Uh -huh. Try again. Aha. Uh -huh. Try again. Huh. So that's a turning point, isn't it? That's the, sort of the three-quarter or maybe the golden ratio of the melody, right? Of, of, which now is about to finish. So that ends just like it did the second time through. So, so many different relationships there. And in fact, everyone relates to every other. The whole thing's like a fractal. So it, it's, you have these little relationships. And in fact, other parts of the symphony actually do that. They go. They're, they're in 6-8 and there's flutes and it's a different scene in the, in the whole symphony, which is quite long. And... Yet, the overarching phrases also relate to each other. So there's four bars, and another, is that one, two, three, one, two, yes, and then another four bars, and that could even be considered as eight bars, which you could then compare to this complete contrast, 
are moving and we're not going up and down scales we sort of stay in place and then we have the last eight bars it's a simplistic melody but it illustrates everything here that we're talking about so we had basically what one two three four a a b a four articulations of an idea and they were each a set of paired opposites functioning at different scales. And I don't mean scales. I mean scales of size, resolution, time. So this is a great, it, this helps us as we listen to follow what's happening in the music. We can hear the structure. We know where we are. We hear this, uh, again, narrativity. These are cues that tell us where are we. All right, Jason, does music have the power to communicate something or anything? And if so, what and how? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we hit some of that earlier. Um, I think it goes even deeper. You know, it, in, in the Republic, in Plato's Republic, there, there's a whole discussion about the, what the, they call modes, these different scales. And there's Dorian and uh, Phrygian and Lydian. And we have these modes today. They are not the same exact in, in terms of uh, note values or tuning, but we've retained the, the, some of the essence of those things, um, these scale collections. And I think it's interesting to maybe check some of those out. And, and we've already been doing that here today, but I think go a little farther with it. So we all recognize us being Westerners, the, the major scale. Now, Let's look at some of the modes. These are the most basic traditional modes. We have one called Dorian. And in a way, you hear that as a kind of, it's a major with certain colors, right? In other words, there it was, now it's no longer major, it's minor, but we hear it as compared to the major scale. So there's minor, third, and then it kind of sounds major there. In there, that shows up. That's the seventh. That is not major because major would be there. So, and where do we hear that? We hear it like in um, Irish music. For example, or you know, the ballad of so and so, my bonnie lad. I always think of as a scale that denotes the idea or connotes the idea of bravery. It's sort of film score, right? Here comes the, the imperial something, something. Why? Because the minor has this no quality, right? It says no. For whatever it's saying no about, doesn't matter. That says yes. And it represents a departure, sort of moving up and ascending from the no to a yes. So, so that, to me, sounds like courage, bravery. You see what I'm saying? So that's a very useful movement. So you have a combination of no and yes in the same scale, also called a mode. So 
let's look at the next one is Phrygian. Right? Now, that's quite dark to our ear. But again, when we heard a little bit of this earlier, it's like Spanish music. It's quite, it's going down. There's a sense of downward movement. There is very little rising here. So this I think of as, it's, it's an intense sadness. It's a, it's a, almost a wailing kind of thing because there is no interval here that rises. Even if I were to play it ascending, it's very difficult. Everything's pushing against me. It just wants me to go the other way. So, you might be defeated. Music of defeat. So, next we have Lydian, sounds like this. And that's the distinguishing quality, is that... Remember the devil? There he is. And that too sounds a bit very, I would say, the other way, optimistic, happy. Everything pushing up is pretty much the com complete antithesis of the previous mode. Mixolydian. This is kind of the blue. Uh, okay. Norwegian wood did so. We hear this in blues, rock and roll. It's, it's, it's a chord, it's a scale of celebration. What's interesting about it? the overtones, the first ones. You can create that mode from that series. Unlike major, which is in fact has this a different note here. There's a reason for it. It takes us out of the urge to move somewhere. It keeps us more stable. But when we let that seventh in, doing is reaching for notes closer to the series that we don't have in our equal tempered 12 note system so mixolydian is quite fun it's a very celebrational uh, mode or scale and again why it's in line with the series basically rises, but then when we hit that seventh, we just stay there. Um, there are more modes, so I don't want to go crazy with that, but I think that gives you some sense anyway. If you just think of major as a kind of uber template, 
or just the series, really. The overtones. Each one of those scales that I just played and the different melodic flavors that they possessed and the interim tones be between the root, the third, and the fifth. Giving a sense of rising and falling, accepting or denying. Um, that's what music expresses and it does it incredibly well. I, more so than words can ever hope. Um, I want to show one other interesting thing because I, I think we might run out of time soon. The overtone series here has so far very relaxed tones. That one comes in, it's a bit out of tune with our system, but it's there. And then the other one sticks out is this one. Now I can tell you this is the B flat and the F sharp. I'm doing this on C. C, C, G, B flat, F sharp. Now when we have a key, a scale, we have seven notes that comprise that scale. If I want to modulate, I still have seven notes, but one of them's, if I'm going to go to the closest scale I can go to, one has to be different. So I have the F sharp, where before I did not. So as I move around the circle of fifths, adding one extra tone each time. So this circle of fifths, these keys, this major system, major minor scales are, it's a kind of diagram of common tones. But here's what's interesting and why I bring it up. And I hope I can convey this in sound. Here's the B flat and there's the F sharp. So at the top of our circle of fifths, there is C, sort of the primordial note, the ur note, the first note, the first tuned note. It's the white notes. On the, on the piano. So C is there, no sharps, no flats, no color, no black notes. If I add the B flat, it puts me in F. F is a fifth below C. It is the next nearest scale. It has six of the seven tones in common with C, all except B flat. Likewise, if I go the other way, there's the F sharp. If I add F sharp to C major instead of the F, I'm in G. G is a fifth up from C. So I have F, C, G. One, four, five. What I'm trying to show here is not only a kinship between those chords and those keys, but the fact that the seeds of modulation and movement are contained in just the one tone already. Everything that music does. I mean, we first we were just talking about chords and gravity and certain strong notes and all this. But even more, you have these salient tones, these active tones, that really pull against the structure. And they pull us into other keys. And they continue to do that for each key we build on. And 
I'm just kind of following the overtone series, and when I get one of those, let's say, funny notes, a salient note, a note that sticks out to our ear a bit, uh, it pulls us onward through movement. So there is something quite fascinating to me about that. It's almost teleological, you know. There's just, there's just, it's music moves itself. We're here to kind of just uh, discover and uncover. What is the absolute versus programmatic music? That is, um, basically, there's two kinds. If you look through history, we have pieces that go by titles like Sonata, String Quartet, Number, Such and Such, Symphony, etc. And... We generally don't make an association, except in rare cases where there's like a nickname for a piece or something, Moonlight Sonata or something. Generally, though, these are absolute. They, they are, it's music about itself. It's music about music. It's, it's just there to demonstrate the relationships or maybe a certain note. I'm in a key, say like this. <laughs> that guy sticks out right so all throughout the piece I'm going to find ways of bringing that to you in one case I might even go to there as a key itself not just stick out as a accidental as a, as a chromatic note in an otherwise tonal texture so in other words absolute basically just means it is absent of any extra musical associations it purely music it's it's in a sense architectural and structural and relationship oriented the programmatic music is for the most part an outgrowth of the romantic era and this is associative with extra musical things so you begin to have pieces with titles like Harold in Italy or um, you know, Faust, Mephisto, Mephisto's Waltz, uh, Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn, Rite of Spring, etc., etc. So I, that's just a very quick way of, of distinguishing those. And there's a big difference there because um, right away, programmatic music puts ideas in our mind, images. We think ballet, we think film, we think opera. Uh, some you know there's a whole visual component, but with absolute music, there isn't. It's just the notes. What about keys? Do different keys have a different meaning, or are they all the same? That's an interesting question. People argue that the keys are the same in the sense that we have what's called equal temperament, and because all these intervals are the same distance from each other. <laughs> that why should it be any different if I'm in C or D flat or D? There's no immediate perceptible sonic quality differing between these. And yet, there's something we inherit. Um, as, as you may know from other interviews you've conducted, uh, historically this was not always the case. Because of that comma, that Pythagorean comma, that differential of when you start putting all those fifths together and get all the way up there and hit the same note and it's sharp a bit. And trying to fix that problem meant 
that we had to borrow the difference from other intervals. And the earliest solutions to that problem involved favoring certain keys over others. So you had what was called well-tempered tuning, and that meant, you know, would be beautifully in tune with the overtone series again. Um, and even F would kind of be okay in G, because remember, they're, they're all right next to each other, fifth below and fifth above. Might even be able to go another fifth below and a fifth above, but as you progressed away and tried to tune those keys, many of which use the same notes as previous ones, they did not sound as in tune. So by the time you got to the bottom of the circle, which has keys like F sharp and B and D flat, for all you piano students, the ones with lots and lots of accidentals, um, those were horribly out of tune and, in fact, un unusable in many cases. Uh, and so the, the repertoire was composed around that reality. And lots of pieces in C major, if you look at Mozart's uh, piano sonatas, keyboard sonatas, and you look at the keys therein, you will not see one in, that is in the key of D flat or B major for its entirety. I mean, there, there might be four or six bars in, inside somewhere where it, it visits the key, you know, modulates and goes away. Um, but there are none in that key. They're all in C, F, G, D, and their relative minors, C, A minor, uh, G, E minor, that kind of thing. They're all up at the top of the circle. Those were the only useful keys because of this tuning problem. As time went on and new tuning systems were explored and we get to the 19th century and pianos are becoming more commonplace and uh, these new systems are coming in, increasingly composers were reaching toward those more distant keys. And at the same time, what we have today, equal temperament, was becoming standardized and was in use more and more. Nevertheless... I find, and I think it's a real phenomenon, not only because of where the chords fall on the ear, that just falls in a different place than F does. I, I can't voice an F major triad the same exact way and have it sound in the same register. It's going to be higher. So it's lighter somehow. But if I voiced that same F down here, it's got another kind of quality, but not the same as So C major always has a sense of mm, universality, purity, simplicity, for, you know, for obvious associative reasons, but also the repertoire reflects that to a large degree. And as you then go to F, there are certain kinds of pieces you see there. That's uh, Beethoven's mm, six, I think. Pastoral Symphony. So you have key colors. And at first those colors were because of the interval flavors. And now with equal temperament, they are colors because, and this was true then too, but it's still true now, the range upon which the notes fall on the ear. That D flat major 
has just such a feeling to it that no other key has. It's a shame, too, that you hear, you know, a certain song or something, and it's transposed by a couple steps, and it just takes on a whole other quality. Uh, it's very interesting. So I think of the Circle of Fifths as a diagram of exteriority descending into in interiority. So the upper keys are very extroverted. They, they push out. C major, F major, G major, D, A. They, they are out in the world and the repertoire often reflects that and as you get down to those lower keys, B, D flat, F sharp, the music is much more introspective or even religious, spiritual. Uh, it deals with more complex emotions if, if by any other reason it just hasn't been around as long, those, those keys, they have not been in use. They're more complex upon the eye, and the time in which the keys came into common use was at a time when that was the focus of Western minds, the interior, and the emotions. It's the beginning of expressionism, the height of romanticism. So I do believe we inherit all that today. We still... As children of the West, we, we can hear it, and we retain those those cultural uh, and and musical associations. What about music's effects on the body? Is there any? Oh boy, yeah. There's a lot of research on that. I, you know, I've been seeing stuff on YouTube and at the recommendation of friends, where certain frequencies are said to affect this gland or, or that gland or the DNA is getting restructured and, you know, with, with 537 hertz or, you know, and we know by, from cymatics certainly in Hans Jenny's work that, that these intervals and these notes and these frequencies create geometric forms and patterns. Um, so it makes sense. It would seem that that would somehow affect our body, our DNA, our, our blood we are also pattern oriented vibration based beings such as we determined the very beginning of our interview here so everything's vibration so in the sense of sympathetic vibration uh yeah i think so and the classic experiment i always like to bring up is the one about the they had the plants these, these sort of basic philodendrons or something and they they put them in a room and in one room expose them solely to classical music and in the other room solely to a uh, certain heavy metal I don't remember the band and you know same food same light and all this water and the, the of course as you might suspect the classical plants sort of uh, flourished and were quite robust and green and so on and the heavy metal ones looked like uh, sort of wilted and, and decayed a bit now, that doesn't mean that one music is bad and one is good. I mean, we as humans have cathartic uh, needs and, and energies that we want to uh, run that the music can serve, serve us. So, but yeah, I think it affects the organism, sure. I think it had to do more with... Uh, graduality versus suddenness, right? So when you had these sort of loud, soft, these heavy metals a bit more that way, the stark contrasts and, and 
lots of uh, more noise element as opposed to pitch element, distortion and dissonance, that kind of stuff. So as opposed to the classical music paradigm, which is highly controlled and um, lots of consonants, there is dissonance in there, but it all tends to be quite gradual and under tight, tight control and smooth. So, yeah, I, I there's some good theory and work to support that but again I, I, I would not want to be in a position to say consonants good dissonance bad you know I, I think it's simply just something to uh, observe Lou Harrison for example is a local composer here in the Bay Area who died uh, I don't know it must be some years now was a big champion of, of these purer tuning systems and bringing them back uh, because he felt that our equal-tempered system being so kind of a, an approximation of nature and in a sense of, uh, he felt a bastardization of it really, that we don't hear pure intervals, almost no intervals are in tune theories now with our system, this tuning system. And he felt it, made, it makes us sick. Um, and he was a big advocate for exploring alternate tunings. Um, it was an interesting lecture of his I went to once about that, and he played different, uh, he played a piano piece of his that Keith Jarrett played, and it was tuned with one of these other tunings. Um, it was quite beautiful, I have to say. Uh, so yeah, I do think there's some effect there, and um, it's kind of whatever floats your boat, you know? Music that stirs the passions commodification, saturation, is that good or bad? I personally am not pleased with the way in which um, music has become a, a wallpaper. Um, I do see the reason it has such a contextual function and it so obviously fits scenes, right? So it's whether you're at a wedding or a funeral, obviously a party, a club, that'll make sense to me. Uh, but when I think of it, in terms of shopping or in an elevator, you know, uh, it takes on another quality. And especially if it's a great piece, so like everybody's raving about some new Honda or whatever, but they've got uh, Tchaikovsky there selling it underneath. And, and I kind of think, hmm, I wonder if there's something wrong here. Um, so I, I'm not sure what's, I think it's important to pay attention that, you know, what's happening to art music. I mean, I think we're in such a plurality of ideas and culture now in this global drive of everything where all the ideas of the world are accessible to everyone through the internet and every, you know, all the technology we have. Uh, I think music is getting affected in a very interesting way that way. Uh, when I was a younger man or even young 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 man and teenager I would go to the record store I don't know about you we're about the same age you'd walk in there and there were what eight ten different sections maybe genres of albums and now oh god I, <laughs> hundreds of genres and styles of music and this is both amazing and terrifying it's sort of which where do you start and and so people say, what kind of music do you like? I think, oh my God, you want to see my iPod? I mean, everything. I <laughs> so 
at the same time, it makes it much harder for a Mozart or someone ever to rise again. We have no more common language in that sense. So that's not to say that can't be good composers or great ones. It's just that the style is gone. There is no one style. So, uh, yeah, music has a great power to rally people behind action, to join them when they are sad, to lift them, to celebrate. I don't think that'll go away. I, I mean, it's, it's the very basis of what it is. It's, a, it's a singing together. It's, it's what the notes themselves do. And we, too, with it. What makes devotional music devotional? Yeah. You think of Sufis or even, you know, a Lutheran hymn all over the world. You know, music can and is used to worship or to praise. And for me, I'm, I feel I'm in the, the greatest presence of it when it is completely selfless. I don't think of the petitionary, you know, save us, we're dying, we, we're suffering, have mercy on us. I mean, you know, that's, that's obviously uh, uh, devotional in a sense. But when I hear the Sufis play, or I worked with these Indian musicians for a time, and I'll tell you, the way they made music, even if it was not associated with any religious theme at the time, it was a dance piece or something, they are completely absorbed in what they're doing, the the guru comes. He actually kisses, and he then he puts his fingers on the instrument, and he walks by each musician and kind of gives them this blessing, you know, as he goes. And the whole thing is a celebration of life. And in the act of making the music, they they disappear. The individuals are gone. The, no sense of personality. This is not the rock star guitar solo, you know, and the, the screaming girls. And, you know, that's all very good, too, in a way. And that has its religious function as well, doesn't it, as a kind of uh, surrender and ceremony. But for me, I've tried to practice this myself as, as a improvising musician to go into that meditative state where the music creates itself and you are merely a kind of uh, what vessel interpreter, and we we mentioned this earlier too. I mean, in a sense that you know the whole, all this stuff, it has its own life and vitality to it. So to be devotional, truly, um, like Hazrat Dinayat Khan's uh, writings, he kind of tries to bring this out. It's, music is the the breath of life. It's the soul of the universe. And when you make music, you are mirroring the macrocosm in that moment and indeed a part of it. So to me, that's you're merging with the cosmos and, and letting this music come through you. What is the single most important concept that you would like people to take away from this interview? Wow, there's a big question. Um, basically, I think it's important not to judge different musical expressions and different styles. I, I encounter that more than anything else. And we all know about you know the, the trans 
generational thing, you know, when my parents listen to this music and I listen to that, and you call that music, that's noise, you know, or hip-hop is noise, or who can listen to this, or who can listen to that. Everybody's got their favorite uh, peeve or music they want to hate, music they want to love, and all this. And I have to say, I, the, the greatest thing that probably I got from my own musical journey so far has been how to sit and be with whatever is there in front of you, whatever music it is. And I hope maybe that was the value of this interview in some way, because if we could parse a little bit some of this how it works without expecting it to wear our particular clothes, we might be more accepting as individuals of others. And not only because of their differences, because we would then see through those to the similarities and the things we share. Um, so I think it's, it's well advised to open to other styles of music, other cultures in general, um, in all of their productions. I think it, there's so much beauty to be found there, and you're sort of selling yourself short if you don't uh, go check it out. And the way to do it is to not project expectations of how it should unfold. And there is a great spiritual lesson there, and I continue to learn it. And would you give the title of your book and any contact information or website information you might want listeners to have? Sure, sure. The book's called The Elements of Music, Melody, Rhythm, and Harmony. It is by Wooden Books and Walker Bloomsbury. My uh, music website is jasonmartineau.com. And I have also a site on sacred geometry called dodecahedron.us. What I'm doing is kind of trying to find different ways of bringing music and the visual arts together. I also, of course, have an art website, martineauarts.com. So all of these can be found from any of the others anyway, but I certainly invite you to uh, explore. And I think also because we live in the digital renaissance, we should all embrace the arts and being creative artists ourselves with a decentralized system that we now live in is no more... Uh, corporation that is in charge of publishing and distribution and promotion. We can all do it ourselves and we have the tools. And I think it's such a beautiful, inspiring time and the creative principle fights the destructive principle. So the more of you out there creating, I think the more of a future we can look forward to. And Jason, thank you for a very pleasing and mind-blowing interview, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I, I loved it. I, I hope I uh, answered all your questions. I think you did, and I think the audience will rather enjoy this uh, interview. So thank you again. All right. Thank you. <laughs> 